Welcome, I'm Judy Adams. I'm the current president of the local chapter of the American Association of University Women, AAUW, and we, along with Lisa and the library program, the NAACP, the Human Relations Commission, and the Ministerial Association, started putting together these conversations about two and a half years ago. So we are pleased as punch to see so many people here. You know, some nights we have six, some nights we have 20, and some nights we have a crowd like this. So that's wonderful. Um, I just want to thank everyone for coming. Uh, if you are interested at all in AAUW, there are some flyers in the back that explain about our commitment to education and equity for women and girls. And that means all women and girls. And I'm going to turn it over to Lisa for her rules and regulations about questions. Alrighty, so we're going to get started tonight with a presentation on immigration to kind of help us learn a little bit more about it. And then after that, we're going to have our panel tell their stories of how they came to the U.S. And after that, we're going to take a little break. And if you have a question about the presentation or for a panelist in particular, I have question cards and pencils I will pass around to you if you raise your hand. And then I will give those questions to Nahid and she will ask our panel. Yes. So that is how it's going to go, and now I'm going to turn it over to Caitlin. <laughs> Hello, welcome everyone. I'm the Executive Director of the Onsboro Human Relations Commission, and I'm so pleased to see everyone here. Um, the staff of the commission in the back, you see the display board for the International Center and some brochures and information. And the Commission, Onsboro Human Relations Commission, also has some flyers for a housing presentation and our brochure. And we have also uh, compiled some additional stories from immigra immigrants who live here in Onsboro. Um, so if you would like to pick up that packet, and that will give you even more insight and knowledge of additional um, stories from people here in your own neighborhood. Um, so now I'm going to turn it over to... Should we the sign-in Yes, and there's a sign-in sheet going around on a, um, in a binder, so if you would please sign that and put your email so that we can add you to our email list and so you can stay updated on additional events and outreach programs that we are doing. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Nahid Murtasa. She is the Onsboro Human Relations Commission's Vice President and Adjunct Professor at Russia for Political Science. So the buck stops here. We're not gonna turn it over to anybody else. Um, I'd like to welcome you all again on the behalf of Davis County Public Library, AAUW, Owensboro Human Relations Commission, the Davis County Ministerial Association. Um, welcome, welcome to this most important talk. Uh, my name is Nahid Murtaza, and I have the esteemed pleasure of introducing a colleague uh, who is also uh, this year's recipient of the Athena Award. Susan Montavlo Gesser is the Director of Catholic Charities for the Diocese of Owensboro, where she runs programming to address the social concerns of the church, including immigration services. 
Formerly, she was the managing attorney at Kentucky Legal Aid in Owensboro, where she, where, where she represented clients in issues of family law, immigration, cases involving domestic violence, housing, and estate planning. Before joining the staff at Kentucky Legal Aid, Montablo Gesser was an associate at the law firm of Sullivan and Montjoy, practicing exclusively in immigration law. She is a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. She is also a member of the Kentucky Bar Association's Immigration Law Section, Public Interest Law Section, and the Family Law Section. She is a former president of the Davis County Bar Association. She serves on the Kentucky Bar Foundation Board and the Kentucky Bar Association's Diversity Committee. In June, she will become the first female from the second district of Kentucky on the board of the governors of the Kentucky Bar Association. Yes. Mrs. Montavlo Gesser graduated magna cum laude from Washington University in St. Louis and is a 20, 20, 2005 magna cum laude graduate of the Brandeis School of Law at the University of Louisville where she served as an editor for the Law Journal and awarded the honor of being the most, and was awarded the honor of being the most outstanding graduate of the law school class. She served as a law clerk to Judge Joseph McKinley of the Western District of Kentucky from 2005 to 2006. Ms. Montavlo Gesser has represented people from 56 countries and in six continents and organized Owensboro's first immigration law clinic, which is held monthly at St. Joseph and Paul Church in Owensboro. She has four children, Jackie, Jojo, Michael, and Cece, and has been married to her husband, Chad, for 21 years. Um, I'd like for you all to give a nice welcome to Susan. be seeing me um, a little bit giving signals to Susan um, we're trying to keep you guys um, you know here for the allotted time and so um, thank you and welcome okay so I might sound like a little bit like an auctioneer tonight because there's a lot of information to cover and um, we'll see how well that I, I get through this um, what this is not this is not an introductory course on immigration law because that would take us at least a few hours. So what we're doing here is we're scratching the surface and so at the end of it, you'll know what you don't know and that's about all, okay? So um, why should you even care about immigration law as a Kentuckian? Um, well, there was this little report done by um, CARA which is the, um, sort of a, a Catholic group that does a lot of data for us, but it's the Center for Applied Research and the Apostolate at Georgetown University. And they had determined um, in their 2013 report that we have about 120,000 um, non-citizens living in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and we have about 21,000 um, non-citizens living in the Diocese of Owensboro, and within that um, 21,000 in the Diocese of Owensboro. We have approximately 8,000 people living here who are undocumented. Um, that was six years ago. Things have changed. And I'm sure with the International Center being in Bowling Green and in Owensboro, those numbers have only increased. 
So we see that nearly 4% of Kentuckians um, are immigrants and nearly 3% of native-born um, U.S. citizens have at least one parent that um, was an immigrant. So that's about 7% of Kentucky who is directly affected by immigration. Um, you can read the statistics there. I'm not going to read them out for you, but these are some of the reasons that as a, as a good old Kentuckian, you should know a little bit about immigrants who are your neighbors and your friends. Okay. So I wanted to almost sing a song here. They come into America today. So um, they're coming to America, but we don't always have the welcome mat out. Um, for the, about the first 100 years of our country, we didn't really have immigration laws. People just kind of came over and yay, they're here. They'd show up on the next census and they're Americans. Wow. So we had the 14th Amendment there to, to define that a citizen was someone who was born in the United States, so we have, um, we have citizenship upon birth here in the United States, and um, anyone who is naturalized. So um, then we have, uh, that, that's sort of the forefront, right? That's what we have. So we were very welcoming, and this um, led the French to give us the Statue of Liberty because they admired how welcoming we were um, and I say we were, because we were really welcoming in the beginning. Um, but you know, we, and we have that wonderful Emma Lazarus poem um, that was there with the Statue of Liberty when it was dedicated. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is imprisoned lightning, and her name the mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command, the air-bridged harbor of the Twin Cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, she cries with, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. The ref, wretched refuge of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Um, now, we probably wouldn't say that. We'd say, give us your really well-educated Nobel Prize winning people. Um, maybe not so much your homeless or your tempest tossed. But the ironic thing is in the 1880s when the Statue of Liberty was going up is the first time that we started having our first xenophobic immigration laws with the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which um, excluded a whole peoples from a country from becoming US citizens. Um, and that's where uh, it started, and it hasn't really stopped since then. Um, this is federal practice. So I can represent somebody in immigration that lives in California, that lives in Hawaii or New York, um, in immigration law. If they had something, uh, something based upon a divorce or family law issue, I couldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole because I'm not licensed in those states. But as I said, this is federal practice. So you will find the statutes governing, governing immigration law currently in the Immigration and Nationality Act, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act that we call IRA-IRA of 1996, the Administrative Procedure Act, the Nicaraguan Adjustment and Central American Relief Act of 1997, the Haitian Refugee Immigration Families Act of 1988, the American Competitiveness in the 21st Entry Act, 
it goes on and on and on, and they're all represented by these nice little acronyms up here on your screen. But each one of these represents a separate statute that governs immigration law, put together like a patchwork, a quilt, but it doesn't always meet at a seam. Some of it overlaps, some of it contradicts, and so that that's what makes it a little bit more confusing than most law. Um, they say that immigration law and tax law are the two hardest areas to to work in or comprehend as an attorney. So um, what you do to get through all of this, there are regulations that govern, um, because these are statutes, it's federal law, it goes through agencies, and those agencies have to have regulations that control what they do. So we have four titles um, that represent immigration law, and that's in um, the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 86, 20 and 22, Aliens and Nationality, Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Labor, and Foreign Relations, and three separate federal agencies that you deal with in immigration, the Department of Homeland Security. This absorbed what the former INS. So if you ever hear people say, INS did this, INS, INS, there's no such thing as INS. INS has not existed since 2001. It is now the Department of Homeland Security, which inside of it is USCIS, the benefit arm of immigration, ICE. We, we call them La Migra. But anyway, that is, they're the police arm of immigration. They're, they're the scary guys. And then we have Customs and Border Patrol. They're the scary guys that are just at the border and at our international airports. Then we have um, the State Department. That should be obvious as to why they're, they're there. And then we have the Department of Labor, which I always get somebody raising their eyebrow. Why do we have the Department of Labor involved in immigration? You'll find out a little bit in a few minutes, but mainly it's so that um, any employment-based visas don't displace US workers. So before you can apply for a employment-based um, visa, you have to just submit a report and a lot of other things to the Department of Labor to make sure that this immigrant is not taking a minimally qualified US citizen's job. All right. so. So where do you go to look at all this? One is di different websites, USCIS.gov. Um, then we have travelstate.gov, which is the Department of, uh, the State Department, DOL, Department of Labor. And um, I like to go to ALA, which is the Immigration Lawyers Association website. Um, most importantly is this book. This is the Kurzban Immigration Sourcebook. I like to call it the Bible of immigration law. It's a lot like a Bible in that the pages are really thin, the font is really small, and it's a really big book. Um, but you've got to have it, or you can't. I mean, this is and this is just the starting point for any question that you have on immigration. You can't just go here and that's the end. There's more to do. Then um, I like the immigration consequences of criminal activity because you'll see that things that we think of as a no big deal here for as far as crimes are a huge deal for an immigrant. Um, and then there's cases that are reported in different media. Now, common misconceptions. A lot of people think that the visa um, tells you how long you get to stay here. That's not true. Um, the visa tells you how long you have to get here. So if I have an immigrant, if I have a non-immigrant visa that um, starts June 5th, 2019 and ends October 8th, that means I have until October 8th to enter the country. Then they're gonna stamp my passport and put a date on it, 
or give me an I-94 that has a date on it, and that tells me how long my authorized stay is. Sometimes that date will be inside the visa date, sometimes it will be outside the visa date, depending on what type of visa it is. All right, another one I like to hear, or don't like to hear, is that illegal aliens suck our country dry of our resources and they take our social security benefits and all of that jazz. Not true. Um, you, uh, about 10% of what is in our, our social security um, surplus is there because of unauthorized immigrants who will never be allowed to get that money because you have to be a citizen or a legal permanent resident who's been here for 10 years in order to apply for the, that social security benefit. Um, all naturalized citizens have to show that they have faithfully paid taxes or they cannot become citizens of the United States. Undocumented Kentuckians pay $37 million every year in state and local taxes, and that doesn't even count what they pay in sales taxes. Um, all right, so there are immigrant visas and non-immigrant visas. This is our first distinction. Non-immigrant visas are for people who are coming to the United States for a temporary stay. They have to show, they have to prove it's their burden that they don't want to stay in this country. So, and that's the case with every non-immigrant visa except for K visas and H-1B visas. So, this, let me tell you this part, there is a um, non-immigrant visa type for every letter in the alphabet except for W, X, Y, and Z. But that's okay because H makes up for it. There's H-1B, H-2A, you know, there's so many different types of H visas and there's two types of T visas, it's, it gets a little confusing. So there's 20 types of immigrant, non-immigrant visas that are just for employment based, okay? Not gonna go into all of those. Then we have our immigrant based visas. Um, immigrant visas are permanent visas. They are for people who are coming to here to live and to stay. You'll usually think of these people, they're called green card holders. First of all, the green card is not really green. There's a green tint to it, but it's, yeah. So it's a legal permanent residence card. Okay, so family-based immigration. This is the most common type. Family reunification has traditionally been an important principle for our immigration system. It allows US citizens and legal permanent residents to bring certain family members to the United States. You can't, you can't um, send a petition over for your grandchild, okay? You can't have them come to the United States. Um, that's not a, a qualifying relationship. So these are in two different categories, immediate relatives, and, um, and of family preference categories. So who are immediate relatives? Immediate relatives are spouses of US citizens, unmarried minor children of US citizens, parents of US citizens, but the child can't apply for the parent until the child is 21 years old, and they all must meet standard eligibility criteria. Petitioners have to meet a certain age requirement and a certain financial requirement, because you have to show that you are willing and able to support this person at 125% of the poverty line for 10 years until they decide no longer to live in the United States or they die, um, yeah, or, or they become a citizen. Uh, those are the only things that'll get you out of it. Spouses are often don't realize that divorce doesn't end this requirement, so you can have that, you can have that enforced in a, Divorce court, if you want. Um, then we have the family preference system. F1s are unmarried sons and daughters of US citizens. Uh, second category is, is made into two categories. F2As are spouses and children of permanent residents. 
And then we have unmarried sons and daughters, 21 years of age or older, of permanent residents. Then our third category are married sons and daughters of US citizens. And our fourth category are siblings of US citizens. So what does that mean? That means you've got to wait. So if I am um, a US citizen and my uh, married child is of Mexican descent, um, they've got a 23-year wait until there's a visa available. If I apply right now, in 23 years, they can apply for um, permanent residence. <laughs> so you can see the wait times up here. There aren't very many of them that are short unless they're a spouse or a child of a legal permanent resident. And then it's about two years. Everything after that is, it's a pretty long wait. So employment-based immigrant visas, uh, the overall numerical um, limit for employment-based visas is 140,000, but we never get to 140,000 because for each person that gets an immigrant visa, they may have a spouse or a child that comes with them, and that takes off the total of 140,000. So we are, we are never granting 140,000. Um, these are divided into five preference categories. The first is the persons of extraordinary ability. We call this the Nobel Prize visa because if you've won an international prize of acclaim, um, then you're eligible to get this visa. Um, the second category is members of professions holding advanced degrees or exceptionability in the arts, sciences, or businesses. We call this the doctor visa or the you're really pretty and you might become a first lady someday visa. Um, <laughs> The third category is professionals with college degrees. We call this just a bachelor's, I'm sorry, or just a master's, I'm sorry. There's another category under there called other workers, and that's like 20% of this category, so those people really don't have much of a chance. Um, fourth category, special immigrant visa. This is for priests, orphans, and government agents. Um, and then we have number five, the entrepreneur visa, which I just like to call the rich people visa, because if you'll give, if you'll invest a million dollars in a business, or only $500,000 in a business if it's in a rural area or an enterprise zone, this visa can be yours. So the wait times for this visa, you'll see that there's a lot up there that say current. So those are, uh, that means that there's a visa available right now. Um, you'll see the categories where they're not very current are those special immigrant ch children that I'm talking about from El Salvador, Nicaragua, uh, and Honduras, um, Guatemala. Also, um, you'll see that for China and India, our professionals have a long time to wait because we have enough of you, they say. Now, um, these are, like I said before, are subject to um, a later labor certification requirement. All of the categories except for the Nobel Prize winners, the special immigrants, and the entrepreneurs have to go through um, the Department of Labor to say, we don't have a person in the United States that is minimally qualified for your position. They have to show they're gonna pay a prevailing wage and all kinds of other jazz. They have to advertise the position in at least three media and get interviews for that position. So then we go to the humanitarian part. Refugees and asylees, there are several categories of legal admission available to people who are fleeing persecution. Refugees are admitted to the United States based upon inability to return to home country because of a well-founded fear of persecution due to your race, membership in a particular social group, political opinion, religion, or national origin. 
Okay, so those are our five big categories. Refugees apply for admission somewhere outside of the United States, usually a third country, and um, their admission turns on numerous factors. One is if we really are, care about that particular group that is being persecuted in home country. In 2019, 25% of Kentucky, of the, of the refugees that were resettled in Kentucky were resettled in Bowling Green and Owensboro. So 21% were in Bowling Green and 4% in Owensboro. And you can see the ceiling that's set by the president from 2015 until now, and that those numbers have decreased steadily um, over those years, as well as the numbers who were resettled. resettled. In 2018, it was 20,918 across the United States. Those numbers are still kind of coming in. Um, but you can see that our numbers have gone down um, as far as what as was resettled in Kentucky, but they're not going down um, as far as much as the other states in the United States. So now we're number eight in the country for resettled refugees in Kentucky. Um, asylum is available to persons already in the United States or who are seeking protection on the same five protected classes that I gave you for refugees. Um, in 2014, there were 23,533 individuals granted asylum. In our immigration court, approximately 80% of asylum seekers are denied. I have a list up here that shows every immigration court and what their, their denials rates are, and you'd be amazed. There are not many that are very high. Um, they're eligible to become le legal permanent residents one year after admission in the United States as a refugee or one year after receiving asylum. Um, deferred action for childhood arrivals, the big thing to know is that this is not legal status. This is not, this does not confer any kind of immigration benefit. It is a stopgap measure. It is a band-aid. So it's a band-aid that allows children who came here prior to turning 15, who arrived prior to June 2007, and graduated from a U.S. high school or were admitted into the military um, to not be deported. Um, they're allowed then to get a work permit, um, which allows them to get a social security card and a driver's license. Um, it allows the holder of the DACA to not accrue what we call unlawful presence in the United States. You don't accrue any unlawful presence in the United States until after you're, you turn 18 years of age, okay? So this allows them to no, not accrue that unlawful presence. What's so big about unlawful presence is that if you get one of the visas that I applied, that I told you about before, say you get a job offer, say you marry a US citizen, and you didn't come into the United States with some kind of status, um, in order to get that visa, you have to return to home country to get the visa. The moment you step foot outside of the United States of America, there is a 10-year bar on your reentry. So even though you qualify, sorry, good luck, we won't, we won't see you for 10 years. But this saves someone from being um, punished by that 10-year bar. There's another exception called a 601 waiver. That is for spouses of US citizens where you show that the spouse would endure extreme and unusual hardship in their spouse's absence. This is not, I don't speak Spanish and they're the breadwinner. It has to, you have to show some physical or mental ailment with the US citizen so that the person can stay here. And naturalizing. So if you get through all of that process and somehow you become a legal permanent resident and you're married to a US citizen, after three years you can apply for naturalization if it's not based upon marriage, it's a five year, you have to be a legal permanent resident for five years, and you, have, you can, in that whole time, you can still be deported. 
So if you're a legal permanent resident, you can still be deported. We had a very famous case out of Kentucky, um, a trucker from Elizabethtown who was a Vietnam veteran and um, was arrested for, they, they found marijuana, allegedly found marijuana under his truck. He was um, going to be deported. So his name was Padilla. We have a Supreme Court case because of Padilla that now we actually have to not give bad advice to immigration clients. Um, just it, the only rule is you can't proactively give bad advice. You have to at least say, talk to an immigration attorney to find out those immigration consequences. So you have to be here for, you have to show continuous presence in the US, you have to show physical presence in the US, you have to show good moral character. What is that? That is no criminal record. The look back period is that statutory time period and that you can't have a crime of moral turpitude or be a, a habitual drunkard or some other random things. You have to show that you speak English prof pro, um, proficiency. Um, it's waived for people who are really old and have been legal permanent residents for a long time or that's disabled. And there's a civics requirement. You, um, there's 100 questions. They only ask you 10 of them. You need to give at least six of them right. Um, how many amendments are there to the US Constitution? 27. Everybody should know that. Okay. You saw how many it was yeah, none of you, but that's okay. And I expected a few of you to, but that's all right. Okay, then there's an oath of allegiance. They used to be able to give this to you in the USCIS office. You can't do that anymore. You have to be in the, in the federal court. So if you're removed, this is how it goes. You can see this crazy process up here. Um, they can hold you without any charge in our local jail for 48 hours, not um, including weekends and holidays. Um, and then they come and pick you up. You get a notice to appear. You, your immigration attorney figures out if you've got any relief available. If you do, yay, but most people don't. Um, and then these are crimes that affect your status. So what is a crime involving moral turpitude? It's not something defense attorneys ever really set, use that much. So a crime of moral turpitude, this is how I like to show you the difference and the, the weirdness that is immigration law. Stealing a candy bar from Walmart, crime of moral turpitude, Involuntary manslaughter, not so much. You're okay there. So a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense to the, you know, the rain to, to normal people, you know. Um, habitual drunkard, that's where you've got three or, more, three or more combined either DUIs or public intoxications, and that'll keep you from being um, naturalized. It will probably get you deported. Um, and any drug offense other than simple possession of marijuana less than 30 grams. So if your prescription is in the wrong bottle, or you're one of those people who keeps your prescriptions in that little thing the days of the week, yeah, that is deportable. There's no exception to that rule. You're out of here. So I think that's, that's all. That's your overview of immigration law. Woo! Woo! I hope I didn't talk too fast. So this portion uh, of the lecture, we're going to have um, our panelists uh, speak. Uh, and share their stories on how they came to the United States. Uh, and our first panelist is Krishna Patel. He's a DACA recipient. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Krishna Patel. And, uh, hello? <laughs> okay, well, let's move up a little bit. Uh, okay, um, how should I start out? Well, my parents came here from Mexico, but I'm originally from South, uh, South Africa. And uh, we came in to America with a work visa. 
And I, honestly, I don't know how we got up to Philadelphia, but that's where we started off. We came, uh, we came in through Mexico and went to Philadelphia. And uh, we decided to move to Kentucky. And through that process, my brother entered uh, DACA. He applied for DACA. And back then, Obama was president and his, uh, like the cycle, of him uh, getting accepted was a lot quicker. It took uh, like a couple months, not even that. And then when we moved to Kentucky, uh, Donald Trump became president. And uh, I mean, it, I wasn't, it's not, it wasn't difficult, but like things just changed. When I applied when I was 15, uh, the process took a lot longer. There's a lot more requirements, such as I had to get multiple testimonials and they had to be like acceptable. They had to be uh, like by, like, they had to be laminated and stuff. Uh, yeah, so the process was long. I, I wouldn't say it was difficult as much as just long. Uh, I, I couldn't get my permit until I had my DACA, and when I got my DACA, I, I could apply for my work permit, and that just took a long time, especially because like, uh, at, the, at the moment, the government was like, <laughs> slowed everything down and st like, stopped uh, filing papers. So the process took a lot longer than was expected. I'd say like it was it was supposed to be like three months. It ended up being like eight or something like that. And uh, after I got that, uh, to get my permit, usually you just need your transcript and your social security and uh, like another piece of, uh, piece of mail. I had to get I had to get that and another recommendation letter from one of my teachers and the uh, school board. Uh, and that process took a while too. I had to go like four times just to get that process going in. And uh, yeah, so now I have the ability to uh, work because I have my work permit. And uh, I have a little bit, like I, I don't get like he's money, the scholarship money that Kentucky gets. Uh, I, don't, I don't get those opportunities, but honestly, I don't think that's going to stop me from doing what I want to do. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's that's, uh, that's it. Yes. Our next panelist is Mama, and she's uh, a refugee. Oh, here. Hi, um, I'm Mama from uh, Burma in Myanmar. Uh, the, when I get in the 2007, um, I tried to study in here, but because of my immigration status, uh, I have to put a lot of money to study in here. The, um, I'm not really a refugee, I'm an asylum in here. Then in 2009, um, I, is after three years, I got silent granted. Uh, now um, I'm a citizen in 2007, uh, 2017. The, for getting here, uh, I when I was when I applied asylum is in California. I've been put for hiring the lawyer like four or five thousand. I spent I put too much spending on money, so I don't have. Uh, money at all for uh, for the school. Then I moved back to Georgia. I have some friend and family who uh, get from refugee from Malaysia. Then when I get 
I trying to go to school back, they say I have to legally a permanent residence. So after I wait uh, almost two years uh, for getting permanent residence, then I went in Georgia Perimeter College for two years. But that's why I'm not qualified for scholarship or any kind of grant because I'm in the um, asylum and just only get a permanent resident holder. So I have to only qualify for financial aid, but that once I have to pay back a lot of things, then I just quit back my school and start um, moving to Owensboro for 2016 and work in the health department for a year and a half. Then now I'm working by contractor for interpreter for helping like uh, court, uh, medicals, uh, some of stuff, things. Uh, that's the only, uh, that's all of my story, how I get here and what I'm doing. So, uh, thank you. Our next panelist is Pablo Gillespie. That's pretty close. All right, thank you. Please feel free to correct me. Um, he's here uh, on economic or business-based migration. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, uh, yes, I came here to Owensboro uh, first uh, to Brescia. I was a, a student at Brescia, and then shortly after graduating, a company here in town called Red Pixel Studios uh, hired me. Uh, first, I was a temp worker. Then shortly after that, they passed me full time, and they started saying, OK, so how do we do to keep you? Uh, that's when uh, I met Susan. I was lucky enough to meet Susan. And uh, we started doing the whole residency or legal permanent status uh, thing. Uh, I'm on one of the EB ones. I think I'm not going to be like the first <laughs> lady. You're, or anything. you're like EB2, EB3. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to believe that it's a noble one. Yeah, but, um, you pro <laughs> Nobel Prize. Uh, pr probably not. Um, so yes, we started doing that. The first step on that was to try to prove that I could not be replaced. Uh, so my job was offered uh, for a, 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 specific, a specific amount of time. I can't remember, it was a few months. Or... Yeah, it was 90 days, three yeah, months. Yeah, three months. Uh, so the, the funny story about that, my, my desk was right at the front of the office, so I kept seeing people come into the office applying for my job. In many cases, just receiving the resumes and passing them on to my, to my boss. Um, it came down to a, a few applicants actually were uh, qualified for, for my job, so we had to do a code off. Uh, where we just competed against each other coding. Uh, I, I won, so um, <laughs> otherwise I would not be here. Um, but yeah, so after we did that, I gained, if, if I understand it correctly, I gained the capability of applying for the residency. I didn't have the residency yet. Uh, so that started a short process of about seven years um, where they, uh, in, amongst many things, uh, and filling forms after forms after forms after forms, and I don't know, spending how much money on it. Uh, so um, after that, they started. Uh, we started doing this this little dance with with uh, the the I not INS sorry Homeland Security and USCIS, uh, where they kept sending my green card to different addresses. Um, none of them were my addresses, or they were previous addresses. Uh, in one case, they sent my um, uh, one of my green cards. Which, yeah, they're great, by the way, uh, yeah. like, like I mentioned. Um, but uh, they sent it to uh, Houston, Texas. I've never been to Houston, Texas. I, ha I have no idea why. Um, but yes, yeah, so during that process, I could not leave the, the country. Um, at halfway through it, we actually applied for a visa, which I believe, I believe was an H1B. H1B. 
um, we applied through, to a visa so I could go back to Argentina, where I'm originally from, uh, to visit my family. So we got that, I was able to go visit. Then shortly after, by my shortly I mean like a year or two after, uh, I got the, the residency, uh, we, we threw a, a big party where I had to explain the differences in between residency and citizenship to about 20 people. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so since then, I've, uh, um, I've gotten married, I have a child, I keep working at the same place that I started working at. We're going on to about 13 years now, um, and I'm a little bit less scared of getting deported than I was about <laughs> seven years ago. Uh, it still haunts me a little bit, but, uh, but, but much, much better. So uh, that's about the, my story in a nutshell, so thank you. Our next guest, um, I would like for her to introduce herself. Speaking. Oh, no, speaking. I have Espanol. No, 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 Yes, so, so, um, okay, go ahead and translate. We can have a translator. Okay, wonderful. Gracias. No, Gracias. Cindy Moreno. Uh, soy de Honduras, estoy en este país con, estoy peleando un asilo político. Uh, hello, my name is Cindy Moreno. Yeah. Uh, uh, I am from Honduras and I am uh, trying to apply for uh, asylum. Mi historia es, uh, salí de Honduras hace aproximadamente casi tres años. I left Honduras about three years ago. Salí huyendo porque ya no ya no se puede vivir en Honduras. Hay demasiadas pandillas. Uh, hay mucha violencia. I left Honduras uh, because of uh, gang activity, a lot of violence, uh, and it's not a place where you can live anymore. Más que todo, salí huyendo de mi país porque los pandilleros eh, se apoderaron de mi casa, teníamos amenazas de muerte, entonces ya no podía seguir viviendo con mi hijo. Tengo un hijo de tres años, de cuatro años. I have a four-year-old son and gang members took possession of my home, so I couldn't live there anymore. Y estoy en proceso con migración. Al principio iba cada 15 días a firmar. Uh, I'm uh, working with the immigration and this process where every 15 years I have to go sign a paper. Uh, luego me cambiaron las citas cada mes, cada mes, cada mes. Tuve que agarrar un abogado. Now I, I have uh, to get a lawyer and I have to go every month. Oh, um, luego que agarré mi abogado tardé como un año aproximadamente para poder obtener mi permiso para estar uh, un poco legal en este país. After uh, un año? Oh, sí, un año luego quedaré mi abogado. After uh, acquiring a lawyer, uh, it was about a year uh, until I got a status where I'm kind of legal in here. Ha sido una experiencia muy bonita haber salido de mi país y haber entrado a este país porque siento que me han abierto las puertas para salir adelante con mi hijo. Uh, it's been a beautiful experience to, to have come here because I feel that doors have opened to be able to uh, live a fruitful life with my son. Es una gran diferencia de estar en mi país a estar aquí porque aquí no se ve la violencia, eh, no, hay mal, no hay maltratos hacia la familia, no hay quien te amenace, al menos hasta el día de hoy no, no, 
nadie me ha amenazado, nadie me ha golpeado, duermo tranquila, sé que me voy a levantar tranquila porque no hay un pandillero en la puerta de mi casa que esté tocando para amenazarme o para pedir algo. I have not received any threats. It's been a beautiful experience. Uh, it's beautiful to be able to go to sleep and uh, wake up knowing that you're not gonna be, that your life's not gonna be threatened by a gang member. Uh, Actualmente tengo mi última corte con inmigración el 9 de diciembre de este año. El juez va a decidir si realmente puedo ganar mi caso o puedo regresar a Honduras. Uh, on December 9th of this year, I'm going to have the last visit with a court where the judge is going to decide if I can stay here or uh, I have to go back to Honduras. Espero que no sea así. No me quiero regresar ya para mi país. <laughs> I think that you got it. <laughs> Uh, she hopes to stay here uh, and that she doesn't have to go back. I'll do Pablo's story and sure. you can do your. Okay. So our um, other family immigrant immigration person could not be here, um, but he has allowed me to tell his story. So um, he is a U.S. citizen, um, but his wife is not. They have four children that are under the age of seven, um, and she was very close to being able to be um, a derivative of her mother's application um, who was abused by her U.S. citizen spouse but she was six months too old to be a derivative of that application. So she married. She was married to her husband, who's a US citizen. They applied for her to get a visa, but she, because she entered without status, she was subject to the 10-year bar. Um, they do have, one of their children has um, special needs, and um, so she applied, and they were granted a 601A waiver, which means that um, going to home country, they are um, pre-approved to be able to come back to the United States. When they went to get that visa in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, um, they uh, messed, the consulate messed up on looking at his affidavit of support. Remember when I told you that you have to make 125% of the poverty line or more for your family household size. Um, they looked at his tax returns from six years ago. Instead of looking at his tax returns from the most recent year, he is a manager of a major poultry producing plant. So he um, obviously would meet that uh, minimum requirement, but they didn't see that. So they made him, uh, they, they denied and then accepted her visa thereafter, but said she would have to do a new 601 waiver in the country. That's a 15-month wait. She was breastfeeding her youngest child when they left, and it will be another uh, 12 months before they adjudicate that waiver for her to come home. So that's sort of what I'd, the family process looks like. And I always warn my uh, clients that are family-based that when they're going to go to home country, they need to speak with a few people who've done this process so they know the pitfalls that can happen um, in the process. So, But I've had many people who, um, just the other day I had a wonderful client who is 19 years old. His parents um, are not documented, but he is a U.S. citizen. Um, and I was afraid to tell him what I have to tell most people, which is, you'll turn 21, you can apply for them, but they came without status, so there's a 10-year bar. 
Thankfully, his father's sister applied for him an application in March of 2001, and there's a little exception to the rule that as long as you have an, uh, an application pending on your behalf before April 30th of 2001, and you can show that you were physically present in the country on May, no, on December the 31st of 2000, you can pay a $1,000 penalty in addition to the other fees. <laughs> and um, be able to adjust status in the United States. So this, this young man is going to be able to um, sponsor his parents. Every case is different and there's always some little nuance that you have to look out for to see whether or not they can adjust status or not. And then I think Nahid has a story too. Surprise. Mera naam Nahid Sultana Murtaza hai aur India mein peda hui. Uh, and so the translation is, um, my name is Nahid Sultana Murtaza. I was born in India, uh, and I came to the United States when I was five. Uh, that was back in 1976. So we can all do the math and figure out how old I am now. Um, my story is uh, family-based uh, migration, um, and uh, more specifically, it's chain migration. Uh, my mother's brother sponsored the entire family sponsored my mother, and then of course, we were derivatives. Um, so uh, we came here, uh, my parents, and, and we, we were very well off in India. So I think that's a misconception uh, for many people. Um, we too, my parents uh, also came here uh, for the betterment of their children uh, to further their education. Um, we were not um, indigent or anything of the sort. And uh, they came here and uh, worked their way and uh, paid it forward. Uh, for the purposes of this panel discussion, I was just wanting to give my example. But if you could uh, go ahead at this time, if you would like to ask any questions, uh, please limit it to the panelists that are here. Uh, because they really uh, came um, you know, from a long distance as well to be here to present their stories to you. So uh, please uh, feel free to ask any questions. Uh, let me know, and uh, Lisa's back there. She can go ahead and uh, give you a note card. Yeah, please. Lisa? So the question is, for Susan, is um, what happened to the large percentage uh, that was denied? Okay. So when you, are, uh, when you are denied asylum by an immigration judge, 
you are subject to being sent back to home country. Um, sometimes you're given um, a second chance um, for some similar type relief, which is called Convention Against T Torture. It's the CAT Treaty. So that's where we say we won't send you back to a place that you will be tortured. Um, and then it, they'll look for another country that is willing to take you. The bad part is, is for asylum, um, you, can only, uh, you can only have a client claim to asylum in one country. So the people who are on our border right now asking for asylum to the United States are losing their chance to ask for asylum in Canada. Um, and if there's one thing that I could say to people, it's apply in Canada. Because in Canada, the one, the asylum rates are much better and they take care of their asylees. They really provide support and resources um, to people who are applying for asylum. Um, and we, resources we don't usually give to the asylum seekers in the United States. So um, if we could get the word out um, to asylum seekers that really Canada is, is the place to go um, to seek asylum. It's, they have great resources and they have much better laws um, for asylum, as do places like Vatican City. It's probably one of the best places for asylees. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very difficult because they're facing going back to a country that doesn't really like them very much. It is not, there is not an appeal process. Uh, there is an appeal process. Um, from the immigration judge, you go to, to another court that looks over administration, it's administrative law. The important thing to remember in immigration, however, in these courts is they're, they're administrative law courts. There is no due process in administrative law. It's procedural due process. So they're looking to see if the procedure was done correctly, um, and it's not a de novo look at the case. So like, it's not another word for de novo, and it's not a clean look at what happened to the case. Um, so that goes to the, the Board of Immigration Appeals. Um, and then it can, after it goes through all of the administrative law courts, at that point, you can go to a court of jurisdiction that we think of, like the Supreme Court or something like that. So um, that takes a while, though. And um, during the appeals process, it's really hard to live because you don't have any status um, to make money or anything like that during, the, during that time. Thank you. How would they get to Vatican City or Canada? Oh, uh, OK. Well, that's the other thing. You can only be in the country that you're traveling through for so much time before you have to get out of there. Um, and you are, are presumed to be seeking asylum in that country. So it's different in different places, but a lot, like a lot of the people that I see that come from Africa, for example, they go to Cuba, then they, from Cuba they go to Ecuador, and from Ecuador they make their way through every single country up to the United States. They can't stay in any of those countries for more than a month, or they're presumed to want to seek asylum in one of those countries. So it's, it's a very difficult process. Um, so for, there are a lot of Canadian, a lot of people who come through the United States to get to Canada um, to seek asylum in Canada. But it's sort of the same thing. They have to get a visa into that country or just arrive at the border um, and, and come in and then apply for asylum. No problem. Okay. Our first question, to the young man on the left and the lady from Honduras. 
what would you like to be doing in three to five years? Well, I plan on getting a major in, oh yeah, sorry, yes. <laughs> uh, I plan on going to college and getting my degree in uh, engineering physics and I plan on getting a minor in chemistry. Uh, honestly, I, I'm in love with engineering and science, so I think this is the best path for me. Uh, I don't know where I'll end up, uh, especially because now I'm actually working on starting a new business with my brother. and. Uh, we're going through a process of uh, actually getting this uh, patent, and so we're, we're creating a healthy popsicle uh, that will help runners and other athletes recover from uh, in, like high endurance activities and prevent cramping. And so, yeah, we're going through the process of that. Um, what else I'd like to do is, uh, when I turn 18, I'd like to invest. <laughs> Uh, I'd want to invest in certain profits and uh, do a lot more research and in, uh, investments. Uh, yeah, and I also like right now uh, our business that we're working on starting, we plan on giving it to a lot of charities, and I think we're putting five percent of the ten percent profit that we make to other uh, organizations like uh, the DACA programs that they have. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. I see an EB2 or an EB5 in your future. <laughs> oh, bueno. A mí me gustaría, bueno, tenemos pensado realmente con mi prima y yo poner como un restaurante de comida latina. Uh, my cousin and I are planning on having a Latin food restaurant. Hemos pensado ponerlo realmente en este lugar porque hemos visto que en este lugar prácticamente solo se vende comida mexicana. We've thought about putting it in this place in Owens Road because uh, mostly it's Mexican food as far as Latino food in, in Owens Road. Entonces hemos estado hablando eso con mi prima ya que ella vive en Louisville, no sé cómo se pronuncia. Louisville. Ajá. Uh, my cousin lives in Louisville, so. Somos las únicas que tenemos como posibilidad de poner un negocio porque somos las únicas que tenemos un permiso para estar en este país. Y mientras que mi otra familia no pueden conseguirlo, no pueden tener un permiso, no pueden ayudarnos como para poner realmente el restaurante. Entonces, nos estamos animando y sí nos gustaría poner un restaurante de, de comida um, centroamericana. Uh, we're the only ones in the family that can do this since we're the only ones that have legal status. Our members of uh, our family don't possess that legal status, so they cannot help. But since we have it, we would like to try to do that. Um, ojalá y pronto sea para que algún día tengan la oportunidad de probar los platillos realmente uh, eh, comida hecha en Honduras. Es riquísima. <laughs> Hopefully soon you'll be able to eat some uh, Honduran, authentic Honduran food, which is delicious. Can I ask? Eso es una, perdón. No, no. Es una de las cosas que más extraño de mi país, la comida, porque es, es, son platillos deliciosos, ricos. That's the one thing that I really miss about my country, the food. <laughs> so since um, we have you speaking, uh, there's a question. Could you talk about how you actually got to the United States and eventually Owensboro. 
what was your journey like? And I know uh, we're trying to keep in uh, the constraints of time, so just very quickly, briefly, describe your journey here to Owensboro. Si es posible describir uh, brevemente cómo fue tu viaje, cómo llegaste a Owensboro, cómo saliste de Honduras y cómo llegaste. Oh, salí de mi país, oh, como se le conoce realmente allá un, un pollero o un coyote, no sé, algo así. Llegué aquí a Estados Unidos en nueve días. Uh, I left my country using a coyote, a uh, pollero, it's uh, the word that they use. Uh, it took about nine days to, come, to get to the U.S. Pero en el transcurso de esos nueve días, sufrí mucho en el camino con mi hijo. Over those nine days, I suffered a lot with my son. Habían noches donde no dormíamos bien, donde no comíamos. There were nights when we wouldn't eat, we wouldn't sleep. Cuando crucé a Estados Unidos, eh, recuerdo que caminé 25 minutos. Uh, whenever I crossed to the U.S., I remember that I walked for 25 minutes. Luego eh, cayó migración y nos, nos agarró. Éramos 39 personas en total las que cruzamos esa noche. We were 39 people crossing that night and immigration caught us after 25 minutes. Incluyendo cinco personas orientales de China. Including five people from China. Eh, luego yo pensé que, que ya todo iba a estar bien ya una vez cruzando de este país, pero todo comenzaba como a encajar. Uh, I thought that everything was going to be okay after I crossed the country, but things started fitting together. Estuve dos noches y dos días en un lugar que se le dice la hielera, eh, conocido en migración, aguantando muchos fríos con mi hijo. No solo estaba yo, había muchas familias con sus hijos a las temperaturas demasiado bajas. I spent two nights in a place that it's commonly known as the ice box. Uh, the temperatures are really, really low. Uh, both me and my son were there with another, with another few people. Según lo que yo pude escuchar, ese es como un castigo por entrar ilegalmente a este país. It's, uh, as, as far as I can, uh, as I've heard, it's almost like a punishment for entering in the country, to the country in this way. Luego de, de, de haber estado en prisión, eh, me mandaron a otro lugar donde estuve 19 días detenida hasta que pude lograr salir. Pude contar mi relato por qué salí de Honduras. Uh, after that, uh, after prison for those days, I spent 19 days detained where I could finally tell the story of why I left Honduras. Y por qué eran las razones por qué había venido de este país, a este país, perdón, y... Y fue algo difícil todo el transcurso y, y a veces tenía que ir a, a la, las cortes, no tenía quien me llevara. Fue muy difícil, pero al final creo que valió la pena porque ya, ya no estoy yendo más. Uh, it was all worth it in the end, but uh, it, was, it was a difficult process. Sometimes I had to go to court and I didn't have a way to get to court. Um, but in the end, it was all worth it. Thank you. Uh, to our first lady speaker, uh, on what grounds were, was your asylum or refugee status granted? The, uh, the question was? On what grounds was your asylum or refugee status granted? Because I was studying Singapore for education, uh, for studying. So I'm not going back uh, my country trying to get it here. So that's the cause. Some I have um, some uh, political issues, 
based on my because um, everyone knows in Burma we have seven, eight ethnic groups. I mean, calling Chin. We are most 99.9 uh, .9 was a Christianity. Uh, we, the, based on the Myanmar, uh, Burma political Christian in Chin was, um, they did not really warm, uh, they did not really welcome and they really excluded if you want to go higher uh, like position, mayor kind of thing, you can get higher because of your chain and your, uh, your religion is Christianity. Those based on we trying to all the chain, you will see most of the chain here in Malaysia, they try to get refugee. Uh, most of the chain was trying to get out from the country and they don't have any chance for, if you want to do a business uh, like, um, they, they, they always investigated how you got those money, how you're doing some, because they have um, those, the problem we all change was have. Um, that's why all, based on my religion and my ethnic was um, granted for myself. Okay, wonderful. The next two questions are you, uh, for you, Susan. Um, one is, uh, do I understand the law as written now correctly? DACA recipients' only pathway to citizenship is through adoption or marriage. Is this correct? Is citizenship automatic through adoption or marriage? Uh, yes or no? No. I mean, all depends. It's, it's the lawyer answer. Okay. So um, DACA recipients, because they are not, um, they don't have status, but they are um, not accruing unlawful presence, they are not subject to the 10-year bar. So if there is an immediately available visa for them, say through marriage um, or through one of those employment-based categories where it's current, then they can apply for that. And then, um, and, and then at that point, just adjust status within the United States. Um, adoption's not really an option. Um, if, because you have to be of a certain age for an adoption to work. Um, you have to be under the age of 14 whenever you're adopted for adoption to work through an immigration purposes. Um, so you can't adopt a, an adult or an, an older child um, to make that happen. There are some other ways, a bunch of various and sundry ways that it can happen. So if you're a DACA person, then you're most like, then you can also be a special immigrant juvenile. So there's that point of entry. A special immigrant juvenile is someone who is an unaccompanied minor. So someone who is um, eligible for long-term foster care. And so for those, um, those kids, they can adjust status to be re legal permanent residents through that. Um, if you're a victim of crime, you get a U visa and that turns into a green, to, a, to legal permanent residents or um, there's a lot of other little ways that you can fix it, but it's a little bit, um, it's, it's harder. The only provision it takes away is that unlawful presence. So for example, if you were 20 when you got your DACA, you spent two years in unlawful presence, that takes away all of those opportunities. You would still have to have some kind of 601 waiver or something. And now 15-year-olds who are just now eligible for DACA because they turned 15 can't apply because they are not accepting um, new applications for DACA. Those haven't been allowed for a couple years. 
Next question also is for you. Would increasing aid to Nicaragua help decrease the numbers fleeing? Uh, I believe that much of what is wrong there was caused by our policies over the years. You could say that about the whole North, uh, Northern Triangle of Central America. A lot of their um, political issues and uh, were caused um, in part by U.S. governmental policies. You could say that about a lot of different countries too. <laughs> you are. You could say uh, Bolivia, Argentina, all, a lot of other countries. Um, yeah. So. Um, Aid, does aid help? Yes, aid helps. Does it hurt if you take away the aid? Yes, you will see a, probably a direct correlation between reducing aid to countries and people fleeing that country. Um, it will never really fix the problem, um, but it definitely helps to have aid going to certain countries and um, to reduce the the poverty and the trauma in those countries because you see the corruption the gang violence all of that stuff when you have um horrible intolerable poverty that just it kind of goes hand in hand together so um if we gave more aid would it help the flow of migrants stop um not completely but it would probably help i mean a lot of these things are based upon those five factors that I said for refugees and, um, and asylees, those are uh, uh, people being repressed because of a certain thing about themselves that they um, should not or cannot change. Um, those things might still exist in very um, wealthy countries, but you see it happen a whole lot more in countries that are developing. So this last question is a question for all our panelists. Uh, and if we could start on this end, in one or two sentences tops, uh, what could the community of Owensboro do to make you immigrants feel more welcome? Una o dos canciones que podría ser el día de Owensboro para que te sientas más más bienvenida. ¿Qué podría hacer? ¿Qué podrían hacer para que te sientas mejor, para que te sientas bienvenida en Owensboro? <laughs> Just one or two sentences is fine. Just to be able to be with her family, that's, that's just enough. Be able to have her mom with her. Oh, sure. Just to be able to have her mom and have her family, that's, that's the most important thing for her to, to feel at home. Thank you. Um, just hug an immigrant whenever you see one. <laughs> um, we all have stories, um, and you know, most of us are not super scary. <laughs> yes, um, I really warm like um, I never see, I've been living in California, San Francisco, and uh, Georgia. I didn't really see kind of those welcoming for listening to our story. So I really thank you uh, who been here tonight. Then I uh, like this real, uh, the library is my favorite one in Owensboro because a lot of resource is in here available. Uh, 
that's the one then um, everyone in the United States that all the people have really um, work hard and understand how those immigrant people uh, whatever I was um, sometimes I help in my community for based on kind of the thing for church or like um, whatever they need um, they understand how we uh, hard work and how far we came from so that's um, including Owens World people. So I want to thank you for everyone. And I like this quiet place and beautiful city. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, well, I, I mean, I basically grew up here. And I, I have made a lot of like bonds. And I have a lot of supporters are in Owensboro. So I honestly would just like to thank everyone. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything, really. Uh, I have enough supporters everywhere, and uh, yeah, I, I feel at home. <laughs> so, uh, that's my white dad. Before I let Susan close, um, one thing I'd just like to make mention: uh, all our panelists here, um, you are hearing their stories, right? And for a lot of them, this is their beginning point. Um, I think it would be only fair to say that I am probably at the tail end of uh, the, the chain migration um, wonder. Uh, and I most certainly um, feel that, that my journey has been now at this point in my life to get back to my community. Um, and I have tried that. Um, trust me when I say that everyone before you um, loves this country dearly. Um, even though some of them are still struggling for uh, their adjustment of status. But um, we as immigrants bring so much uh, to this wonderful country. And this is the beginning, and this uh, could be a possibility of the near end, where you have uh, very well-educated um, immigrants uh, who are US citizens who uh, adore the country and would like to give back as much as possible and pay it forward uh, to not just immigrants, but to all uh, people living here in the United States. Yes? I, I would just like to invite all our panelists to participate in the multicultural festivals. It takes place here every August. It's a way of celebrating not only the different ethnicities that are here in Owensboro want to celebrate immigrants who come and make a home here. And uh, I'll be happy to connect you with the people who organize it because I just got the email this week to say, I think it's August 18th this year.
food, a lot of culture, a lot of different entertainment, and uh, did I mention food? <laughs> a lot of food. So uh, please feel free to get on our brochures before you leave, and there's also information back there about our um, our refugee resettlement agency itself. Okay. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank every, I want to thank everybody for um, for being here, the panelists definitely for telling your stories and for letting me explain the legal part of what they went through. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's an amazing part of the law. It's an amazing thing to be able to do. Um, I'm really happy that at Catholic Charities will be able to do immigration legal services for this area. Um, it's been a dream of mine for a long time. And I am the daughter of an immigrant. Um, that's why my name is Montal Susan Candelaria Montalvo Gesser. Um, my dad came here to go to Kentucky Wesleyan um, long ago, and thankfully he fell in love with my mother, and that's why we're here. Um, but yeah, if you have hot dogs from Fields Packing Company, you can thank my dad because he created the formula for your hot dog. <laughs> so, the I mean, the, the, it's and it's really true. Immigrants bring so much to the United States, and there are so many. We are built on these immigrant stories, and we are the ch we are the children of those immigrants. Um, all of us. Um, so I just, yeah, we need to be able to continue that American dream. And we have gone through pa pa times in the past where we've had a lot of restrictive immigration laws. Um, but I believe there are some former presidents that say it best, progress in the United States is not always in a straight line. Sometimes we go back and then we find our way back again to what is right to the better angels of our nature. And I believe that that's what will happen here in the United States again. So, thanks. <laughs>